Paperman meets such interesting people. Coming up on the Media Project, Ian Pickus, Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, and me, Rex Smith, discussing media issues of the recent week. We'll talk about how analytics are so hard to understand, and you can't make news judgments on that basis, and how radio and digital and print all have a place in the media firmament. Those topics and a lot more coming up next on the Media Project. Paperman meets such interesting people. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is your half hour of analysis and commentary on what's going on in the news media these days, we think, at least from our perspective of some veteran journalists, and now this week, a young fella. I'm Rex Smith. Ish. Young-ish fella. I'm Rex Smith from the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is here, formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, columnist, commentator on said radio enterprise. And the previously mentioned younger person than the old folks around here, that would be Ian Pickus, the news director of WAMC, the aforementioned young man. Sir, how are you doing? What is it like with those of us who are not exactly fully engaged in the daily production of news these days? What is different now from what was, say, five, eight years ago? One good thing is that there is more accessibility to public officials in the course of the pandemic who have brought all of their activities to live streams and being online. I would say that's a positive development from our end because when I first took over this job and we were planning coverage for a day, if you missed a press conference or a city council meeting or so on and we're an audio medium, that was it. You didn't get the sound. And now part of our day every morning is figuring out, okay, at 11 o'clock, Governor Hochul has a COVID briefing. At 1230, the U.S. senators from Connecticut are going to be talking about guns. At one o'clock, Governor Scott from Vermont is speaking at President Biden's democracy summit. And so that has been much more of sort of a math problem for us to figure out if we have enough machines up to record all of these things and figure out what they're saying and what's newsworthy from it. 
That's the one positive thing I'll say about COVID in the newsroom. On the other hand, it's been a demanding state of emergency kind of war footing for almost two years now. So, Ian, you've worked in newspapers, of course, and what you're describing on the radio is immediate and far more present than a newspaper, which comes out once a day, and then you see... No. It doesn't come out once a day? Well, yeah, but the point is that a newspaper is not once a day. Every newsroom these days is instantaneous, and the print product, as we've said on this show for several years now, is sort of the afterthought. The real product is the digital presentation, which is instantaneous, which is why most news is broken by newspapers during the day. What was interesting to me about what you were saying, Ian, is that news organizations are always trying to get the latest news and want to make sure we don't miss something. Yeah. But those that are not involved in broadcast aren't thinking about sound. sound. Yeah. So yeah. that you become, if you're thinking about sound, this was interesting mm-hmm. to me. I think Because so. you became, a, I don't want to say a slave, but you have to go to where the sound is. You have to follow the noise and hope that it's also newsworthy. And I will say one downside of that is PR operations have gotten much more sophisticated and they understand that if this is an unflattering story, you can send an email statement and not give us any chance to talk to the person who might be in the eye of the storm. They're not going to be in the story. And that cuts both ways. You know, if someone's running for Congress, they're dying to get a free media interview exposure and they'll talk to you until tomorrow morning. But uh, if someone's done something controversial or you're doing a damaging story on them, justify and they send you a two-line emailed statement, now you don't have the sound for that story. And that is a constant struggle for us. I also just wanted to emphasize what Rex was saying in correcting Alan, (laughs) uh, that all news organizations are striving for immediacy. And because they're called a newspaper, it's almost silly at this point in our society to think that we're, well, I guess this holds until tomorrow. Because (laughs) Running the Saratogian, we would try to beat WAMC. And Which is ridiculous. I mean, here's, so this, so here's this very small little, I wouldn't say insignificant newspaper compared to WAMC. But, I mean, to say that you were trying to compete, it's like a mole trying to compete with And a, what uh, stories uh, did elephant. you break we, while you're insulting Barbara's we, newsroom? We what stories do you break in Saratoga we, that the Saratogian didn't have? Don't well, we, keeps, in? <laughs> the competition keeps people on their toes. You have or had reporters in Saratoga County, still do, trying to cover the local news. But I am glad you brought your lawyer, Rex, with you. <laughs> you know, the difficulty, though, you're right, what Barbara points to. And I used to be a TV reporter, and the difficulty is you have to have visuals to go with your story here for radio you need to have it's better to have right wouldn't you say actualities you want to have the sound and the advantage of print if there is such a thing it used to be well you only need the words but of course when you're now all competing digitally and visually you got to have it all no matter where your newsroom is right and you're looking for some kind of visual element even if the news mm-hmm. ones are more static it's greater if, if we have video to go with the audio and have a little videotape but at the very least, we always want pictures. You know, I don't know. I get up very early in the morning. I get, let's say, 2 o'clock. Do you? Yeah. I hadn't heard that before. 2, Is that two o'clock right? in the morning. And then I look at all the newspapers. I look at the TU. I don't necessarily look at the Saratogians. Too bad your column is in there. You might want to check it out. Yes, I hope that that wasn't a threat. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, it was not a threat, and I don't run that newspaper anymore. I'm just a subscriber. Great. Well, the price is right. But I was going to say, I get up early in the morning, and I read all of the papers, including the TU, including the New York Times and uh, the Washington Post, and you know, it takes me an hour to get through all of that stuff. For the most part, Rex, I don't come back to it during the day. 
The point being, you know, this idea of you're striving for immediacy. Many of us, especially as older people, have a sense that, you know, this is my time with the Times Union. Yeah, that may be. But what I think you're not quite cognizant of is the fact that the news now finds its consumers, is that there are digital ways that the news is pushed to you. Push alerts, you heard of that? Do you ever get a bulletin on your phone and say, oh, look at that? Yes. And say there's, aha, and that's how news is primarily delivered now, that and social media. And so actually most people are not quite like you, amazingly. They are actually consuming news as it comes, and that's how news is delivered these days. So you're, you are getting news during the day from the New York Times and the Washington Post and maybe even the Times Union. So. That's a good thing, and that's why push alerts are so important. During my editorship at the Times Union, I was so frustrated that we didn't have the technology. It was not delivered to the newsroom as early <laughs> by years as it should have been uh, so that we could uh, present push alerts to our readers right away because that's a really important way. And, and young people these days expect the news to find them. Uh, you know, They're not going to subscribe to uh, an old-fashioned thing like a newspaper. Good thing, too, I say. And that's something in the newsroom, just real quick, that we are intensely focused on here. Most reporters spend most of their day on Twitter trying to be first or seeing what they've missed. And the push alerts have been really helpful, actually, during this pandemic, because uh, recently, you know, we got a new mask mandate in North Adams, Massachusetts. As soon as we found out, that went out as a push alert for anyone who has the WAMC app. And that's even faster than what we can do on the hour with a live newscast. Does that newspaper, the North Adams transcript, does that still exist, Stephen? Are you the news source for most people in North Adams, you think? I hope so. We've, you know, I think the North Adams transcript has been absorbed by the larger Berkshire Eagle ownership group. But, you know, that's the second city in Berkshire County that's kind of lost its daily newspaper and a hospital in the last few years. So there's definitely a, um, an opportunity there. This is the thing that is now being contested, which we talk about in this program a lot, and that is efforts to help sustain those local media enterprises like that little newspaper North Adams that expired. Now there is a push for tax breaks to help those enterprises stay afloat, both in New York State and in Congress. And Alan's grabbing his head. It's too bad we don't have visuals. That would see? be a good part. <laughs> you can see Alan doesn't. But I did that. quote you in my objection to that plan. Ah, I did say my friend. I probably shouldn't have done that. But my friend Rick Smith, you know, has proposed this or is pushing this. As you know, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that the federal coffers should be used to give money to publishers of newspapers and others, unless, of course, they're ready to go nonprofit. So I'm pretty adamant about that, Rex. And I think anybody listening to this show would say, wait a minute, you mean the newspapers want them to give them money to keep no, going? No, they don't. No, well, they don't. tax they credits. Ah, like well, tax credits uh, that, that a lot of businesses, other businesses that are actually might be less important to the fabric of a community than a newspaper get. We use tax policy in this country, professor of political science, all the time to further the goals of the elected representative's support. Why wouldn't a sound media ecosystem deserve the same kind of tax consideration as, say, oil companies, well, which there, get tax there, credits? There are, there are, of course, a lot of reasons for that, Rex. One of them is that we expect our newspapers, our news agencies, to be looking carefully at what politicians are doing. Now, if they become dependent on those politicians for some kind of a handout, you can quibble over what kind of handout, but some kind of handout to keep them going, there's a real problem for me of conflict of interest. I think that's a valid concern, yeah. 
But I think in the balance, in the weighing of things, I think some limited tax support to help these small businesses that are local newspapers, especially the little weeklies, the thousands of little weeklies around the country that are dying at a much faster rate than the dailies, to allow them to survive in their communities so that somebody, somebody is covering the school boards. Look, you, you can't cover the school board in North Adams. You can't, but the transcript did because WAMC is this vast enterprise, just bought a new station down in Connecticut, right? Right. You can't cover Very the school probably. board in Connecticut, but the local newspaper that used to be there did. I want to guarantee guarantee you that if a major story comes up before that school board, we're going to know about it and we'll be there. Well, that's cherry picking on the big issues, which I understand makes total sense. And it used to aggravate the heck out of me when Rex Smith would be sending his staff over to Saratoga to cherry pick on stuff that we're covering in Saratoga day after day and week after week, the routine stuff, the important quote-unquote local stuff. And then when something sexy was happening, they swoop in and, and we felt and the same it. way about the New York Times coming into the upstate community, uh, finally picking up on our reporting. Look, the great example of that is Nexium, the oh. cult based in uh, the Capital Region that the Times Union had reported on for years, including a terrific 2012 investigative piece. Didn't get the attention from the prosecutors, the DAs in the Capital Region, and the U.S. Attorney and the Attorney General of New York State ignored the story until the New York Times came in and picked up on it, and then it happened. So I. You know, we all have this feeling of uh, somebody. Oh, oh, definitely. With Nexium, even though the Saratogian, it was enough of a challenge to kind of cover the square block around us. Half Moon, where Nexium was based, is in Saratoga County. And I always regretted, and still to this day, wow, that would have been a great story for our little paper to be able to just free somebody up to do nothing but investigate that. It was beyond what we could do. So yeah. from a story perspective, I was glad that the Times Union did as much as it did. Okay. Well, you know, actually, one of the things that we were talking about just a minute ago, Ian, having to do with making the decisions about these stories that you're going to cover, comes to a really interesting point that nowadays with digital technology, we're able to see what stories people care about, what people click on, what people spend time with. It's not just page views but it is engagement, how much time people spend with something. It's about where the audience you're looking for is coming from, who it is who's doing it. And there's a very interesting analysis that was published in the Columbia Journalism Review that we've taken a look at that talks about the difficulty of using these analytics to try to make news judgments because <laughs> sure. you can make a lot of different interpretations based upon that. Do you ever, in deciding what to cover, in your correspondence around the region. To what extent are you looking at what people are responding to or what they care about in deciding what it is that you're going to cover? You know, I would admit to the fact that it is a bit of a mystery to me. And a recent example, we did a story about the late legendary Stephen Sondheim, who died at age 91, the Broadway composer and lyricist. And he had strong ties to Berkshire County, where he went to Williams College, and a number of his productions had been put up over the years at the theater festivals. And that story has gained more traction on social media in recent weeks than just about anything else we've done. Can I explain why? No. Typically, the stories that do well, and it's to my regret, are, you know, the classic, if it bleeds, it leads sort of stories. And I'm very fortunate in my position at AMC, although I have access to our analytics numbers, uh, they really don't drive what we do. Because if they did, all we would be doing is standing outside fires and funeral homes, unfortunately. And not to say that that's not important 
We've covered, you know, a grisly murder just this week at WAMC, but... The murder was not at W. <laughs> right. In the newsroom. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> See, everyone needs an editor. Or uh, boss of some kind. But I have found that the more uh, controversial, so to speak, the more grisly, you know, the more horrifying the details, typically those stories are the ones that do best. We at AMC have been protected from only focusing on those, I think. Yeah, I think that everybody has to not focus only on those numbers, right? Barbara, you didn't make decisions as an editor based on what was necessarily most popular. It was the same situation that Ian was describing, that sometimes you can't really make sense of the numbers, and sometimes what's driving the numbers is not... It's understandable because it's human interest. It's things people can relate to. It's something mm. happening now. It's things ordinary people are talking about. But you can't be a slave to only the things that get high clicks. And that article that you're referring to, Rex, it was a long piece, and going through the whole thing, the end of it starts off the same way that it begins, saying, and trying to figure out what all these numbers mean and yeah. what to do about it and how to interpret it is hotly contested. It's like, we don't really know. We don't and, really know. And yeah. so, it's, so the data is still good to look at. It's important to look at, and I think it's useful, but it's just one of the tools. You need to use your news judgment also. Well, you know, Delmer C. Dunn, in his classic book, Public Officials and the Press, said that the criteria for choosing stories changes from one—this is what you've been talking about, basically—changes from one place to another. Now, I have to say, each person making a decision, Barbara, you, or Rex, or Ian, obviously have different personal criteria that you're going to use, but one that Del Dunn used to talk about was— ease of coverage. It was a very interesting idea that if it was going to take a huge amount of research, you know, you really have to be careful because if you can just say, hey, you get out there and cover that, that's what we call ease of coverage, right? Right. That makes sense that there has to be some degree of ease of coverage and the fewer resources that you have, the more you rely on things that are easier to cover. That's not going to give you the most clicks it's all the time. It's a constant dilemma. I remember as a reporter in the state capitol years ago and running a, a small bureau there of a half dozen people, it is a you know that you could fill your day and fill your news hole, the space that is uh, allocated for your coverage, by going to these events, by, as Ian describes, the staged events where you can get sound or in the case of print or whatever it was that you were looking for. But if you're really doing your job, you you try to find some time to step outside that mm. stuff and to go beyond. But it's not as easy. The ease of coverage is I can just go there and think that I'm doing my job and by gosh, I've got it. And you're not really serving your readership if you're not taking a, a more thoughtful approach to it and giving them the range of coverage. Even before there were computers, there would be news organizations doing tremendous work on in-depth projects that took a long time and then would just spew out pages and pages, thousands of words on something, and then be surprised that not a lot of people <laughs> seem to have read it. <laughs> and if it was something that was going to get clicks nowadays, I think the same thing would happen is that, wow, this was such an amazing story, but it didn't get as many clicks. I had that happen this week on a sort of a run-of-the-mill records request story where I waited for a document that I had uh, put in a request for in March and got it in December, finally wrote the story, you know, got a few hundred words on it, and it's something that no one else had had published yet, and nobody clicked on it. Just oh. nobody. Oh. Yeah, it that happens all the time. I'm going to click yeah. as soon as the show is over. <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> 
well, literally nobody or almost nobody. Don't call those other people that read it nobodies. <laughs> Next to nobody. I want to ask our editors, the three of you in the room, a question. And that is, when I was running the well-known Fire Island Sun back there all of those years ago, I came to this terrible time when the, the editor of the paper, I was the publisher, turned around to me and said, well, these are the five stories I'm going to run with, and you have to fill the rest of the paper with ads. <laughs> it has to be 50-50. So I said, well, I can't do that. And he said, you have to because that's all we got. So I took all the little ads we had and I quadrupled them inside. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> so how, how much does allocation of space in all of your experiences count? In other words, if you're an editor, do I have to come up with more stuff today just because I need more stuff? Well, there's still print publications, and yes, you have to make sure you can fill the product. And I can remember the weekly newspaper that still is published by the Saratogian in southern Saratoga County had X number of spaces. If ad revenue is down, there's more space. You can blow up an ad up to a certain point, but it still has to mathematically, financially be legitimate. And so if you have a prolific writer, reporter, who's going to be able to get those human interest stories, get the evergreen stories you have in your pocket, maybe get some um, local writers who are going to contribute columns that are within your budget. Mm. Um, yeah, you need to be thinking about how you're going to fill the space. I never had, I honestly don't recall ever having that problem. My problem was having too little space. Uh, you're constantly trying to pack the reporting you have into the limited news hole because you're given the dummies showing the ads stacked up there. But of course, this is an outdated concept because digital space is unlimited. I mean, you have only a certain space in the the great presentation digitally, but you can have as long a story as you like online. But when I would send, would my it. reporters would graduate and you'd steal them away at the Times Union, <laughs> and they would suddenly discover, wow, I don't have to write two stories a day to fill the newspaper. They might not even use a story that I'm working on for a whole day or two. I might even get three. Because there are more reporters. There are more reporters so that you, yeah. you, it wasn't as much of a challenge to try to fill the space right. with so, the staff you had. So put another way, take that, Rex. <laughs> yeah, well, but the difficulty of finding the space for the stories, and, the, and people will only read a certain amount. You know, you have reporters who write long and who will say, but this story really needs 3,000 words. And you think, oh, nobody's going to read 3,000 words. And that's the difficulty is conveying to people that you can write as much as you like, but uh, but the journalistic responsibility is to make your content accessible and useful to people. And it's of no use if people aren't reading it. So you need to be able to present it in few but, enough words to get it across. But Rex, you do remember, I'm sure, putting a story in because you thought it had real journalistic value and saying to yourself, I hope somebody reads this. Yeah, I hope somebody reads this because it, it doesn't. And that happens a lot where you have what you really think is an important story. Well, to Ian's point, you think that this story is important enough that you waited months for the documentation <laughs> to back it up. And then it doesn't seem to resonate with your news consumers. But at least it's out there for a baseline for future reporting. That's where I'm hanging my hat right now. I will say, Rex, to your point, 
that's a central tension that we're dealing with here at the radio station, which is our new news is on for an hour a day, 365 days a year. And what we've taken to doing now a lot is our story, let's say we have a five minute interview with somebody on the air, and now there's a 22 minute version of that on the website. And yes. if you want to hear the whole thing, that's great. You can go on to WAMC.org or subscribe to our podcast. And new people there. They do, do if they're interested. indication yeah. whether or not that advice is followed? Not on everything, certainly. And sometimes five minutes is more than enough. But other times, like we're dealing with right now, we have an 80-minute interview with these two musicians coming out. And if you're a fan of those two, you'll probably listen to the 80. But are we airing an 80-minute interview? No. You know, I was just having a conversation yesterday with an old source, a guy who's been long retired from the state capitol, but who was talking about recognizing that there were certain stories that only a few people would read, but sometimes those few people would be the influential, important folks, and you, you want those people to read the story. So sometimes if you do have a long story, you put the whole thing out there. I mean, the flexibility now of having the web to back up your fundamental product is great. But sometimes you will need to do a whole story that has an investigative edge, even if you know that most of your readers are not going to consume it. But it gets the point out. It has the impact on the public, ultimately, because those few people who are reading it are the right people you need to have read it. And I like what you said, Ian, about the story is now out there. You're on the record with that story. There could be more on that topic, whatever the topic is later on. You haven't been asleep at the wheel. You've been covering something. We do that all the time, and we'll look back and say, oh, geez, that was four years ago? Good thing we did that story. Yeah. It happened yesterday. Or somebody else does the story this month that you did four months ago, and you say, we did that story already, <laughs> and, and you feel like, uh, I get no credit. I get no credit. If you're just joining us, you can share your thoughts. Media at WAMC.org. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. Ian Pickus, the WAMC News Director, is here. Alan Shartok, the grand poobah of said public radio network. Barbara Lombardo and I'm Rex Smith. We're just old newspaper people. Well, I still have to well, put I in the grades for my students yeah. at Albany. Next semester, Ian and I are teaching different sections of the same class. Is that true? Wow. I don't lie. <laughs> Not on this show. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of Alan's comments there. Here we go. So, Alan, here's something that I know that is probably going to fit right into that category that you were talking about earlier, and that you're upset about the notion of subsidizing newspapers. But surely you can go along with the idea of newspapers having their day in court against the big tech giants. Little newspapers all over the country are banding together to sue Google and Facebook alleging that they have mo monopolized the digital ad market because they're taking all those ads away. You know, Rex, I want to use an intellectual term. I have spoken of this with you on many occasions. You're nothing but a big crybaby. You know, uh, the, the, tr the truth of the matter is you're always looking for a reason that newspapers have failed or are failing. And I think this falls into this category. Look, as a great newspaper publisher I knew once said to me, stick a fork in it. This is done. So your point is? Well, so, I mean, all these little radio stations that failed that you've bought up now for public radio yeah. and turned them into not-for-profits and non-tax-paying, used to be tax-paying supportive businesses in the community, they all have died as well. But if a newspaper group does that, buying up little newspapers and kind of consolidates them, yeah, and we decry that. We say this is, this is a shame because it takes away the local voice. Well, I have not said that. So you're trying to put words in my mouth, which I have 
have never uttered. So it's okay that a big hedge fund comes in and takes up uh, local newspapers like the Saratogian and sure. the Record. And... No, it's not okay. Ah, okay. Anyway, it is interesting, I think, to our listeners that there are now some 200 publications around the country that are representing 17 different ownership groups that are saying Google and Facebook and other big enterprises like this that now account for two-thirds of all the digital mm, advertising right. sales in this country ought to be restrained in some way, that they are basically interfering with the free marketplace. They Do they have a case? Do you think they'll have a case? I think they have a pretty good case. It's, it's now been consolidated into the Southern District of New York federal court, so it could be interesting. Yeah. But, Rex, it's, again, the newspapers crying that somebody has done something bad to them. What do you know? Mm. And with that, we are out of time, amazingly enough. This is the Media Project for this week. Ian Pickus, Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. We're with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you for joining us this week on the Media Project. That got contentious. Gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the flow. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC. Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Ian Pickus is WAMC's news director. You can find out more or schedule a podcast at wamc.org or just download the free WAMC app from the Play Store for your iPhone or Android and listen to the Media Project anytime, anywhere. Thanks for listening. Interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.